Come to look at the Public Accounts Committee today uh, because they were looking at a variety of issues. Let's start with the overpayment of the pandem- pandemic unemployment payment, uh, Ashling. What figures did we hear today? First of all, I suppose, tell us who was at the committee yes. and, and what were they saying on that on that point? So, um, yeah, the Public Accounts Committee today met uh, for the first time this term and they had the Department of Social Protection before them. So this is the Secretary General, John McCone, who was leading, I suppose, the testimony there today. Um, so as you said there, they covered a, a broad range of topics um, because obviously social protection, it's, it's a large department and it, it covers and spans a lot of different areas in terms of people in society's interaction with it Um, but in particular I suppose one thing that lots of people will remember and connect with and maybe have direct experience with is the pandemic unemployment payment so this was the weekly payment that the government uh, very quickly um, sought to implement and have paid into people's bank accounts uh, at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic I think 880,000 people were in receipt of this payment at the height um, of it and it was at a cost of 9.2 billion euro to the state Um, it ran from 2020 until 2022 and it stopped in March 2022 and in that time um, the Department of Social Protection have gone back and looked at these payments in, in detailed analysis they've gone back the week to week payments and matched them up against uh, people's uh, revenue returns um, so if a person was on the PUP for a time and then they went back to work at some other time they were checking was there an overlap so did you get the PUP when you actually had started working again um, and they found that there was about 60,000 cases where there was an overlap now some of those overlaps might be a day the pandemic on a Employment payment was paid each week so maybe you started the job on a Wednesday and you had already gotten the payment for that week so look two days payment it's not going to break the bank or you know ruin the Department of Social Protection's um, revenue or their their um, account standing but um What's interesting, I suppose, is that um, the Department of Social Protection, the Secretary General, said that this could be up to €200 million euro worth of payments. So that's public money. They obviously want to be hand, seem to be handling public money correctly and they want to be able to recoup what they can from that. Now, that's €200 um, million is, a, I suppose, an estimate so far based on what they're looking at and they have to do more analysis to get the actual uh, figure. Um, and what was interesting is that the Fianna Fáil um, a Social Protection spokesperson, spokesman, Paul McAuliffe is on the committee, uh, the Public Accounts Committee, and he asked about how you're going to recoup this because someone on the PUP very likely, and for a lot of people, um, it might have been the first time they ever interacted with social protection or welfare in any way, and it may be the the last time they ever interact with it until they get their pension at 66. They're so and until they reenact with social welfare again. And I suppose with such a large amount of cases, uh, Paul McAuliffe was asking the question, is it the case then that these people might be liable for it when they turn 66? And I mean, that could be people that are you know turning 66 next year and got the PUP two years ago. Um, so they could be in, in for maybe a couple hundred euro uh, bill when they re-engage with social protection. So um, that was an interesting um, angle, I suppose, of, of today's um, committee hearing. And um, I suppose it just shows the scale of the pandemic unemployment payment and how much I suppose the legacy of it and the department are setting up a special unit in Sligo they're dedicating a unit to going back and looking at these cases um, and contacting these people and checking these payments and checking in with them um, so they said that they're going to start sending out letters shortly to people to make them aware if they do have an overpayment uh, they, if they have a debt to the social welfare um, department and that they will be um, getting in touch with them but look I mean people 
uh, pandemic unemployment payment where you lived in 2020 might not be where you live now and if you're not in contact with social protection they might not be able to find you you could until, have a debt until you're 66 until you're 66 so okay, yeah. um, maybe check up on that if you're listening and you're not you're, you might have gotten a 100 euro extra more than you needed to Okay the other uh, the other issue that came up John McCone was talking about was obviously there have been I think 107,000 Ukrainians who have come to the country of whom there are around 80,000 left and he was doing a breakdown of the figures as to how many of them are engaged in the workforce. Yeah, so this is quite interesting actually and I think um, it's something we keep saying that we've welcomed 100,000 Ukrainians and we have 103,000 I think have been given PPSN numbers and that's how they kind of measure it but in terms of social protection they're saying that around 80,000 of those people are still here. So they're saying that about 20,000 have left according to social protection uh, because they're matching up the PPSN right. number We actually have a clip of it. Let's hear he was talking about how many of those uh, are engaged in the workforce. This is John McKeown, the Secretary General, in front of the Public Accounts Committee today. So about 27% are children, about 66% are working age, and about 6% are um, pensioners. That, that should come to 99 or 100 there, thereabouts, if I've done my sums right. What, what roughly then is the percentage of people who are working in the people that, Of the people, the, the, the number is about 28%, 27, 28% of people. It varies each month, but it's hovering around the 30% mark of people who are working age, who are working. And would that be consistent with other populations? Are there impediments? I know that a lot of people who do arrive here actually do want to get out and, okay. and work, and I understand that it would be it is more difficult to access the labour market when you've arrived in. It, it would be lower than the general population, um, but it would be higher than employment rates of... Uh, generally, the, 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 for example, the ILO estimated that, uh, the, that the employment rate that you would expect would be about 25, okay. uh, based on the characteristics, because a lot of them, as I said, are women with children, yeah. and you're looking at a situation where I'm a Ukrainian woman and I've got two children, and I'm, we're living in one bedroom in a hotel in Mayo or in... It's, so when you take all those factors into account, when you take the language factor into account, the ILO has estimated that a good outcome would be 25%, so we're a bit ahead of what the ILO, the International Labour Organisation, has estimated. And that was uh, the person questioning uh, John McKeown there was uh, the uh, the Green Party's Marco Kosick. We'll come back to you, Ashley, because we're, we're on a couple of other topics, but I just want to go to the, to the panel uh, on that particular one. Uh, Fiona Lachlan, the... The, the percentage of Ukrainian people, largely women, there was a bar put on Ukrainian men of uh, who were liable for military service, I think between the ages of about 18 and, and, and 60, from from leaving the country. So it's mostly women and children who, who have come here. 30% of those of working age in, in the labour force. But childcare, uh, John McKeown saying, a, a particularly difficult one. Ukrainian women aren't the only people for whom that's a barrier of entry into the workforce. I, I can appreciate that. Um, and it is difficult in knowing some of the Ukrainians who have come to my own hometown of Newbridge and um, mixing with them. I, you know, some of them have overcome the childcare issue and have been able to get jobs. But the in fairness, the price of childcare has gone down um, significantly over the last two years. And in the programme for government in the next budget, there will be another significant, um, you know, um, cost that will defray what parents have to pay. But is it arguably easier, in fact, to provide Ukrainian women with uh, childcare? Because in, in many cases, they may be living communally in a venue like a hotel. So on-site childcare within the facilities of, of a hotel 
may be easier to provide uh, than, than people seeking out individual childcare for individual children. There may even be economies of scale on that front. No, I think it's a fair point. And in some situations that I'd be aware of, uh, some of the mums who choose not to work will mind some of the other children. But in terms of my own experience uh, uh, with the Ukrainian women and children that are here, they do go to other creches and facilities and I'd imagine part of that too is that integration piece and inclusion piece so that their children are getting to meet others that are non-Ukrainian but I, I think it's a fair point right. and it is a possible solution. Uh, Mairead Farrell the uh, the other I mean the, apart from those who are engaged in the workforce I think John McKeown mentioned it elsewhere in the Public Accounts Committee today some of them are engaged in further education uh, and training and the like but that back to that issue of, of childcare again um, it, it, it's a barrier and, and they're not alone in this. Yeah, look, it, you know, it, it's a, a question, I suppose, as old as time in terms of um, barriers that women face in terms of going um, back or into the workforce. And naturally, um, I think that he made it quite clear as well, like obviously if you're living in more rural areas and if you don't have the access to transport, that that can also um, be a barrier. And of course, the issue in terms of language. And it is good to see so many different organisations actually um, directly dealing with um, people uh, who have come from Ukraine to um, to improve their language skills. The other issue, of course, I would imagine is that... Um, a large number of them wouldn't have expected to be here as long um, as they have as, as the war continues, um, of course, as well. But look, uh, obviously the whole issue uh, in terms of childcare um, and having access uh, for women into the workforce is incredibly important. And it's probably good that this discussion was actually had at, the, at PAC, so it's something that can look, be looked at um, in general. But obviously we're seeing that 17,000 are in full-time employment of about, say, 58,000 right. um, that um, are of that age group. Suzanne Rogers, um, for for people who are currently, you know, in receipt of full child benefit and who are now engaged in the workforce, the original uh, cohort of Ukrainians who arrived, they may be able to afford childcare from existing resources, even through what Fiona Lachlan was pointing out there as informal arrangements from other Ukrainian women in the same uh, accommodation. But people arriving from now on will be on much less and maybe less well able to engage in the workforce than the original cohort. Well, I mean, if you come through the system, the current weekly rate of payment, I have it written down here, is 38.80 a week per adult and 29.80 per week per child. So that's what you'll receive if you're in that system. And I think that that's a really key point, though, that we all thought that the Ukrainian thing, three, six months, were two years down the line. For some people, they may never return to the Ukraine. We need to manage the change that's happening in our society. We need to manage the demographic change. We need to manage migration better. We need to be looking at all of these things. Like in 2024, half of global adults will vote this year. There are 70 countries going to elections this year. That may result in clampdown on human rights. That will cause a movement of people. We have levels of conflict not seen since 1944, and that was before Israel and Gaza. So again, you are going to see a movement of people and we have climate chaos, which again is going to see a huge movement of people. So we need to be planning for um, communities coming into this country. And I keep kind of thinking like, this is a success story in a way because, I mean, I did my leave in cert 20 years before 2008 at peak emigration levels. This was a country that we left. 
this is a country that has a museum dedicated to migration, award-winning museum dedicated to the subject of migration. This is a country that has monuments and statues dotted across the country from here to Bangareras looking at um, the issue of migration. Everybody here has a, an Uncle Daniel in Poughkeepsie or an Auntie Eileen in Rochdale. You know, we, we are part Uncle of... Uncle Daniel was probably never <laughs> vetted before he went either. Well, as, as, as the daughter of a, an economic migrant who was an unattached single military-age man when he went to look for work and ended up in a boarding house with many of his ilk. Um, you know, I, I, and I find all of that really, really questionable. But in terms of migration and global movements of people, this isn't something that we can opt out of. We can't sit this one out. Uh, we need to be planning for this change. And again, if you look around the world, it's the, it's the cities that are full of migrants, you know, that are the most vibrant. You look at New York, you look at London. Dublin is a better place than it was. I mean, people talk about the good old days. I don't know what they're talking about. Dublin is a much, much, much more vibrant, much more interesting place because of the diverse mixes that we have. We need to plan for that. Okay, I I want to move on, uh, Ashling, to the issue of uh, carers, uh, which was discussed at at the Public Accounts uh, Committee today. Yes, indeed. So this was the independent TD, Verona Murphy, was making this point um, that the... In order, or she was making the point about the fact that we're having a referendum coming up on the 8th of March where we're trying to give more support to care given in the family home. Um, and, you know, the government are seeking a yes vote for that to be uh, changed in the constitution. So it's not a, a woman's care, it's a family's. The, rec- the state would recognise the care given within the home by the family and then that uh, attributes to the common good. And Verona Murphy made the point, and it was an interesting one, um, and the Secretary General of the Department of Justice, John McKeown, couldn't really give an answer because it's, it's more of a policy question which which veers into the minister's territory and the and uh, the politics of the day or whoever is in charge and she was talking about why are we means testing the home uh, the carers allowance um so he said that 95000 people are in receipt of the carers allowance um, and half of that uh, the whole, half of those people are getting the halfway carers allowance which uh, my understanding is as he was explaining is a pensioner looking after maybe another pensioner um, so carers Ireland estimate that carers save the state about 20 billion euro a year so Verona Murphy was asking why why is it worth it or why is it justified if they're saving the state that much money um, that we have to means test them and he was saying uh, uh, John McKeown the de- Secretary General was saying that well if we didn't mean t- means test the carer's allowance then it would be um, 40,000 to 50,000 more people would be eligible which could be around 700 million extra oh. euro a year but again he was very keen to say look that's a policy issue and that's politics um, you know that that's where that decision will be made and not with the Secretary General but um, Rona Murphy was saying that the current system, people are at their end of their tether with the idea of the means-tested payment. They're they're providing a huge service to the state and um, that in her mind it was demeaning and with the referendum coming up, we're lauding carers. It just doesn't make sense, right. she said. Any of those hard cases, um, Mairead Farrell, on coming up uh, in your clinic when it comes to, to carers who are falling foul of the means test? Uh, yeah, there is. And actually one thing that massively came up in the summer, which I had meant to... Um, uh, mention as much as possible to be perfectly honest was a lot of um, a lot of women who were now say retirement age 
um, basically getting very, very little to nothing um, of a pension. I think um, we know that, like, we, we know when we've heard so many times getting from Getting basically non, non-contributory pensions despite uh, the kind of unseen like being, work know, of value that, yeah, that they've exa- done throughout their lives. Like decades and, and they felt so, so undervalued when they came or they, a lot of the women, one woman in particular had said to me, you know, she had always been treated as kind of, you know, um, you know, not intelligent and, you know, and that throughout her life would be being in school the way she was treated in school because um, I, I think she had a side issue or, or something like that. And uh, throughout that and then, you know, um, she cared in her, in her home, raised her family and all that. Um, and then now at this point, um, you know, she feels once again let down by the state, but also, f- f- you know, felt as kind of reliant on her husband and as other um, as a result. And that is something that comes right. up um, quite a bit as well. Okay. Um, so, I, ju- yeah. I just want to get to, to the other panel yeah. members as well. Suzanne Rogers, uh, you, you wanted to come in on that particular issue of the carers. I hope I'm not wrong in saying this, but I was under the impression that they had uh, amended that and that there was now an ability for carers to go back and have a credit, like a carer's credit mm-hmm. applied to their pension and that that could also be done retrospectively. So if somebody was, I mean, we're not like retiring at 66, we're probably retiring at 68 or 69, but um, that they could go back in and, and, and uh, so I suppose just to... Uh, no, I had been dealing over yeah. back for months, you know, with the uh, Department of Social Welfare in those specific cases and there wasn't anywhere um, to get. So, it, but again, it, it does show the impact um, that that has had um, on, on those women. But Suzanne Rogers, the... the, the, the the exclusion of people, you know, through the means test, and you heard the answer of John McKeown there saying seven hundred million to scrap the means test and allow people to just default onto the carers allowance. What's your view of that? I mean, I'm sure somebody's going to say moral hazard at some stage, um, which is my trigger. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can be sure of that. Uh, I mean, it 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 goes back to the value of care. It goes back to uh, that undervalued care work. No. No economic system can can function without this unpaid, unseen care work that goes on in the background that's utterly, totally taken for granted. And, you know, we need to be valuing our carers. All right, uh, Fiona Lachlan, does this come up on, uh, in your clinics, the it, issue of, it, of carers and how they, how they fall foul or otherwise of the means test? Absolutely, it has. And if I was minister for a day, that is the first thing that I would do. I would abolish the means test. I do accept. And have you told the minister the of the day currently million. that you would abolish the means <laughs> test? Yes, I have. And I'll tell you how I have done that in conjunction with my female colleagues in the Oireachtas. As chair of the Women's Caucus, we agreed last year that care was the number one issue that we wanted to address. You may remember that we had a motion around period poverty before, before that became, uh, before that was put into the um, programme for government. So we had a debate both in the Dáil and in the Shannon calling for this and acknowledging carers and looking for a new carer strategy. The last one was in 2011. And of course, there's two different types of care. We have the professional carers that we need to support and look after and then the carers at home. And they, you know, whether it's for elderly parents, whether it's for children, whether it's for siblings, the it's a labour of love but it needs to be recognised. And in many of those instances, those homes could do with that extra income coming in. They're really struggling. So I think that this has to be a priority going forward. Okay, 